On this episode, we tell the truth about what's really happening at Michigan this week, and then we finally answer some mailbag questions. Let's get it. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Michigan State of Sports, where it's generally not going very well, but I like to talk about it anyway. Uh, Today's episode has pretty much been flipped, turned upside down, so I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there, I'll tell you about the situation, just so we're all aware. Shout out Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. All right, so this episode was supposed to be two parts. The first part was going to be hoops michigan was going to play north carolina state and then michigan state had a date with virginia but then that bastard covid had to get around and was like nah that's not how this is going down so nc state told michigan they weren't going to be able to play on monday and credit to michigan staff and faculty who were able to quickly organize another game and instead play toledo right now as i'm recording this on wednesday night first of all that's not easy on anybody there's tons of logistics that go around with that And while Michigan is a much better team than Toledo, it's hard to scout, implement a game plan, and do all of that on the fly in less than 48 hours. So kudos there. But while we're patting Michigan on the back, let's just flip a little bird to to Virginia with what happened to the Michigan State game. I mean, why Michigan State was allowed to get on the charter and fly from Lansing to Charlottesville without getting word from Virginia on the test that day is beyond me. It's not like it got canceled to on Wednesday, like an hour before the game was supposed to play. Michigan State landed in Charlottesville around 8 on Tuesday night, and then the game got called later that evening. I mean, like we know that COVID doesn't discriminate, and it doesn't make Virginia a bad program or something because somebody tested positive or was ex- was exposed or whatever the situation may be. But what does make it bad is when a team travels across the country only to find out they can't play that same day and then have to sleep in a hotel and fly back. I mean, the whole thing was just a disaster. So there's no basketball to discuss, but what we're going to do instead is, I know we talked Michigan football earlier this week, but they're still in the news, even more so than they were before. And even with the Ohio State game getting canceled, that, the actual game, is the least of our concerns. I mean, Ohio State was a 30-point favorite. There's nothing to talk about there. We're not missing some great game. We're not losing sleep because the rivalry doesn't get to happen this year. I mean, Michigan fans are pretty much like, well, yeah, we were going to get destroyed. And Michigan State fans are like, you're scared. You're going to get your butts kicked. You suck. And then Ohio State fans are just upset that they don't get to pummel Michigan. But the Big Ten bent over and gave the Buckeyes what they wanted as far as the Big Ten championship is concerned. And so I want to talk about everything that sort of encapsulates that as far as it pertains to Michigan, because it's looking a little suspect, in my opinion, what has transpired the last three days. So there's two things I want to talk about with that. One is the optics of Michigan handling this entire week, from the canceling of the game and the timing of it, to Jim Harbaugh's potential contract extension discussions, to the on-again, off-again press conference on Tuesday, to the inconsistencies that we're hearing, to Ward Manuel's handling of it all. It just feels like a circus. And then two... Briefly, my thoughts on the Ohio State situation and the Big Ten title game. And I'm not going to spend too much time on it because this is a Michigan sports podcast, but it's relevant to both of our schools. 
And I know if at least one of our two schools was in the same position as Ohio State, <coughs> Michigan, uh, then the same thing would happen with the Big Ten. So once that's all done and all nice and tied up in a, in a nice little bow, we got it in a package all wrapped up, then we're going to have some fun and answer the mailbag questions that came in. We got some good ones all over the map, just what I was hoping for, so we'll have fun with that. As a reminder, this episode is brought to you by Cutting Edge Landscaping. I hope you're enjoying this nice 45-degree day right now. It's beautiful outside, and it's going to be warm until Saturday, which is nice, but once that's gone, it is all downhill. And we got snow in the forecast next week. Don't stress yourself out with another thing to put on your already busy plate and try to take care of your driveway, your walkway, your sidewalk. What a hassle. Call my guys over at Cutting Edge Landscaping and let them do it for you. 24-hour snow and ice removal. You simply can't beat it. Cutting Edge Landscaping, a family-owned business based out of Ann Arbor, for a quarter of a century, these guys are the best. Friendly staff, competitive rates, and knowledgeable about anything you need done outside. I'm talking about snow right now because it's winter, but you want your yard designed, maybe put some trees in, throw some mulch down next spring, no problem. How about like some lawn maintenance, mowing, edging, trimming, done deal. Any outdoor help you need, reach out to Joe and his team. Head on over to a2cuttingedge.com. Tell them Tony sent you from the Michigan State of Sports, and I promise you, you'll love the price and service that you get. Once again, that's Cutting Edge Landscaping. Go to a2cuttingedge.com. All right, so Michigan doesn't play against Maryland in football last weekend. Says they don't think they'll be able to play against Ohio State on Saturday, and then it's Tuesday afternoon when they announce no game. The game won't be played. At first, my thought was Michigan is in a no-win situation here. If you play, you get stomped, and that's a bad luck. And if you don't play, you look like you're scared, and that's maybe an even worse luck. But Michigan did have one out, at least, and they didn't take it. They had one way to come out of this looking, looking good, looking fine. Unfortunate the game wasn't played, and moving on. Why was the game called on Tuesday? It's not like Michigan said, look, our numbers are headed in the right, in the right direction. We, want, we don't want to call this now, or, or we do want to call this now, excuse me. So Ohio State has to, has to reschedule with someone else so they can just play six games and qualify for, for the Big Ten title game. It's not like they said that everything was going the wrong way. And look, we want to, we want to cut bait and let Ohio State play someone else because we know we're not going to be able to play this week. The odds that was going to happen were extremely slim even if Michigan did do that. I mean, people are using BYU and Coastal Carolina as an example of Ohio State being able to find someone on the fly. But the difference is those two teams were, had already played non-conference games. The Big Ten flat out ruled that they weren't going to be playing non-conference games this year. So they would have needed another Big Ten team to have opened up. And like right now, Indiana and Purdue earlier today just mutually agreed not to play on Wednesday because of rising numbers in each program. But hypothetically, had Indiana had to cancel. Ohio State and Purdue could have put their heads together and played one another, and then Ohio State would have had its sixth game. But that's not going to happen. And that's not and that's not what Michigan did. That's not the reason they canceled this early in the week. And since that's not what happened, here was the other option. You wait this thing out as long as you possibly can. You continue to meet virtually. You say you want to play to the media. You say our guys are hungry for the opportunity. We're waiting to see what our numbers come 
and look like by towards the end of this week, and you continue to test as best you can, then on Thursday, if the numbers are still the same or worse or not good enough, you pull the plug. Michigan needed transparency, but that's not what they did. They announced on Tuesday that the numbers were bad and they couldn't play. They canceled a noon press conference, only to then an hour later announce that they weren't playing the game, then rescheduled the press conference for four, but instead of it being Jim Harbaugh's press conference, it was Ward Manuel's. And here's what Ward should have done. We have X players test positive. We have Y players who were monitoring based on contact tracing, and those are the numbers that we have, and that's why we can't play this game. Or that's why it looks like we can't play this game. But that's not what he did. He was vague, and he didn't answer anything directly. So instead of getting answers from the man at the top of the food chain, all we're hearing is what sources are saying. And that's what we have to piecemeal together. I mean, for instance, Bruce Feldman tweeted, Source, Michigan was going to be without 45 players. But if you peel back the layers of the onion, that is with positive tests, contract tracing, and injured players. That's, the, that's what that 45 player number, that's where that comes from, supposedly. So first of all, why are you including injured players on that list? Harbaugh doesn't provide a depth chart, and that's not a shot at him, that's just a fact. So it's not like we know if four of those players are injured or 14 are injured. So what does that have to do with anything? Because we don't know, that doesn't tell us how many people are dealing with this COVID situation. And two, that would be an extremely high number in a program to be quarantining or monitoring. And I'm not saying that they're lying at all. But why are we hearing this from Bruce Feldman and not somebody internally? Again, this has to be handled differently be, because this is, a, this is a bigger game. It's a bigger situation. There's more on the line. If this was week three and Michigan cancels on Nebraska or something, I know that's not who they played, but you get the point. Nobody cares. It's because it's the rivalry. It's because Ohio State needed six games to play for the Big Ten title, in theory, and now only has five. And because of all of the rumors swirling around your head coach, whether he's staying, whether he's not, and I'll get to how that impacts this in a little bit. But all of these interact with one another, so there needs full transparency, and it requires a different burden of proof. If it's another game, an earlier week, you just say, look, the numbers aren't adding up. No one thinks anything of it. You have to, with how much is on the line in this game, there can't be anything left open to interpretation. And the main problem is when we did hear from somebody internal, a team doctor, they said Michigan is, quote, not in the red, red zone. The red, red, what they're referring to, is when either more than 5% of players, which you carry about 105 scholarship and walk-on players on your team roughly, so that would be five or six players. If 5% of them, so five or six players, test positive, or more than 7.5% of the program's population, which is those players as well as trainers, coaches, staff, etc., if either of those numbers are crossed, you are in the red, red zone, and you have to shut down for a week. But Michigan wasn't in the red, red zone. That's what the doctor said. So then why did you cancel? I'm not saying Michigan doesn't have a COVID problem. I'm not even saying this game should be played. But why are we trying to put all these answers together ourselves? And why did you cancel it on Tuesday? 
I asked this question on my Twitter rhetorically, and I'll say it again now. If Michigan is 5-0 and or 5-1 or and and actually has a good team and not the team that's been disappointing this year, and they had a real shot to beat Ohio State and go to the Big Ten title game, show of hands, how many of you think Michigan pulls out of that game? Okay, you, the one person who raised his hand, put it down because you're lying. Of course they're going to play. Of course they're going to play. And honestly, that's another issue in and of itself that these colleges are more worried about playing football and making money than protecting their kids. But that's also kind of the point. Michigan is lying by saying this is about safety. No, it's not. It's about not getting your ass kicked on the largest stage you're going to play on all season. That's what it feels like, at least. And if that's not true, I need someone to be specific with me about what is and isn't the case. How is there a report that 45 people are injured or contact tracing or diagnosed positive, yet the doctor says the team isn't in the red-red? I mean, 2 plus 2 can't equal 7. I've tried. It doesn't work. And do you want to know what the icing on the cake is for why Michigan doesn't want to play this game? It goes back to what I talked about on the last episode and how they had to let Harbaugh walk. Apparently, they don't listen to the Michigan State of sports yet because there's rumors he may be coming back. I mean, the most reliable voice in terms of inside information in the Michigan football program, not assessing it objectively or or, or anything like that, but someone who damn well knows what's going on inside that program very frequently is John Bacon, And he tweeted, quote, from solid sources, Manuel has discussed with Harbaugh a new contract with lower base salary and buyout, but with good provisions to hire top assistants and large incentives for performance. Harbaugh can now accept, negotiate, or decline. At least five NFL teams have expressed an interest, though not clear if any have made firm offers. Okay, a quick aside, provisions to hire top assistants. I forgot Don Brown <laughs> wasn't and wasn't making big money. And Josh Gaddis, you're not paying more than a million dollars. So I guess all we need is a little more money, and that's going to solve the problem. Give me a break. But, but there's a lot to unpack with that tweet. And the first is the discrepancy between this report and what Ward Manuel said in his press conference. There's a lot of funky things about what he did on Tuesday. And I'm not saying Bacon is wrong or misleading or anything like that. Honestly, I probably trust him over Ward Manuel, who is, of course, going to wait until the last possible second to speak on anything. But what Manuel said is that he is waiting until after the season ends before he and Harbaugh have contract negotiations. It was supposed to happen earlier this summer, but the two sides stalled, the discussion stalled, once the athletic department budget went in the shitter. And honestly, that's a fair decision to do at, at that time. More than fair. But what, what of this is the truth? It's annoying that we have to do this guesswork because the adults in the room won't lift the curtain even a little bit and just be honest and share what's happening. And so all we're left to do is piece this together and try to find, decipher the truth for ourselves. So here's what I think. Ward Manuel knows that he couldn't let the football team play on Saturday. They'd lose by a zillion. And then turn around and throw Harbaugh a three-year extension worth $20, $25 million, whatever it is. You can't extend a guy who has lost five of his last six games, including both of his rivals, 
the most recent of which would make him 0-6 against Ohio State, would be by at least five touchdowns, you have to imagine, and then say, yeah, we're all good here. Let's run this back. But he also didn't have the cojones, if you will, to tell Harbaugh to kick rocks after this season. So he didn't want to extend him coming off of a loss, and he can't tell him to leave. Those are two bad situations for him, so he thinks. But the worst situation would be to not tell him to leave and not offer him an extension and just let him go into the, some lame duck year in 2021. I mean, that would destroy recruiting. Destroy it. So he said COVID is out of control, which, again, it might be and probably is, but they never even gave this game a genuine chance to run its course. And he just said, we, we got to put the kibosh on this game. I mean, it's phony. It's fake. It's disingenuous. If Michigan was good, they play the game. They're finding a way to do it. Somehow, some way. Or at bare minimum, they're not canceling it on Tuesday. There is a zero, zero percent chance that they would cancel that game on Tuesday if they had a Big Ten title waiting on the line on Saturday. You think they're calling it five days early? Like, ah, yeah, nah, these numbers aren't going to add up, so uh, we can't play this game, and someone else will take our spot. That would never happen. And while this is a Michigan problem right now, it's not just a Michigan problem in general. It's a big business problem. Everybody is selfish and only looks out for number one. They're all hypocrites. Most of them are liars. And it's just really sad to watch. Because, again, We'll, we'll flip it the other way. If Ohio State is 2-2 two and two last week, they don't trot out a team missing 23 players and try to play Michigan State. They say, nah, we'll hang tight. We'll play it safe. And they just wouldn't play the game. But they have tens of millions of dollars on the line. So they're telling their players, look, you're being tested. We're not putting you in harm's way of COVID any more so than you already are by being a part of this team. But you're playing this damn game. We're playing this damn game. But overall, it's just slimy. Manuel is too scared to say anything. Harbaugh is hiding because the only questions he would get right now are, are you scared to play or are you leaving for the NFL? And the fact that we're only hearing from unnamed sources and that those don't line up with what the team doctor said. Am I the only one who's confused here? Or not confused, but no, they're trying to confuse me. It's... All these wires are crossed right now. And all of this could have been avoided if we just had transparency. And of course you would still have skeptics saying, oh, they're scared to play Ohio State or whatever. But if you release the exact numbers, and I'm not saying you have to violate HIPAA or anything and give names, but just give the numbers. You wouldn't have this problem. Look, we have four guys who tested positive and 23 who are contact tracing right now. It's not looking good for, for Saturday, but we're going to wait and see what it looks like on Thursday. Done. And then on Thursday, the numbers are the same, and a, a fifth guy tested positive or something. Boom. Case closed. Too many guys are positive. It's, it's over. If you just are honest, you don't have this problem. But that leads to the next point, and I'm not going to take too much time on it, and that's Ohio State going to the title game. If you don't know, the Big Ten had a mandate that said you must play six games to qualify for the championship game. Ohio State is 5-0, and and that's it. Therefore, Indiana, the second-place team in the East, should 
theoretically play for the title game. However, the Big Ten Conference Administrators Council, along with Big Ten presidents, chancellors, and the Big Ten Conference at large, voted to let Ohio State into the title game because of, quote, competitive balance. Their point was that even if somehow had lo- Ohio State had lost on Saturday, they would be 5-1, and one, but they would have the head-to-head win over Indiana, so they would go to the Big Ten title game regardless of outcome. And all I can say is the Big Ten is so lucky that Ohio State got to play Indiana, and that wasn't one of the games that was canceled. Because it's true. Ohio State, all they need is a sixth game. They could play a, a peewee football team. They could play Ann Arbor Pioneer. You just need six games. And no matter if they lost a million to zero to the Steelers, they would still go. They beat Indiana head-to-head. They both have one loss. They get to go. But that's not the problem. So if, Indi- if Ohio State and Indiana had been postponed, let's say, and Indiana lost to some other team, and let's say Indiana is still 6-1 and one with a loss to Penn State, and it's 5-0 and oh Ohio State, what do you do then? I'll tell you what the Big Ten would have done, is they would have still found a way to put Ohio State in the title game. They would have just found a way. But the question is this. If those teams were in the opposite situation, so Indiana beats Ohio State head-to-head, they're 5-0 and against Ohio State 6-1, and and the Hoosiers' final game gets canceled. Does the Big Ten come together and say, look, Indiana would have made it there either way next week with a win or a loss. They just didn't get to play their last game. So let's put them in. No. They would have said, yeah, it's unfortunate, but we, we had a minimum amount of games that needed to be played for someone to qualify for us for the championship game. We feel there's not enough body of work. It's an extremely unfortunate situation, but it could have happened to anybody. But this all goes back to the point earlier. All these people are disingenuous. It's about money. That's all they care about. Ohio State is what's best for the conference. They're the best. And But with that said, even if, the, even if this is hokey and they're fixing the rules and making it where Ohio State is in the better situation. Number one, Ohio State is without question the best team in the conference. Two, they did beat Indiana. So this decision does kind of feel fair. But three, and most importantly, does the conference feel stupid enough yet? Do they feel dumb enough yet? Not leaving any buffer time to make up games? Making this ridiculous rule that you had to play at least six games in the first place, knowing nobody could guarantee what was going to happen. I mean, you get it. You don't want a 3-0 or 4-0 team to get the benefit over a 7-1 team because they've played half the games. But Jesus, if you don't leave any room for teams to reschedule or have a bye and a makeup game or something, what did you expect? How could how could you think this was going to go another way? There was no room for error in a year filled with error. It's 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 just incredible the lack of forethought and foresight that some of these people put in that people pegged to make decisions like this put into it. It's remarkable. But the last team on the planet who can say anything about this is Michigan. Not that I'm really hearing anything from that fan base, but I'm sure there's factions who are somewhere in la-la land talking about it. But not only should they not discuss it, 
because it's their quote-unquote fault that Ohio State isn't getting a sixth game. But it's because the only other school in this conference that the league would have done this for is Michigan. So to summarize, the Big Ten is stupid. Ohio State should get to go. But the only reason Ohio State is going is because it's what's best for the conference, not what's right. And people are stupid. All right. So we got all that. Michigan is not being honest. Whether they have COVID or not, they are not being honest or doing their best, giving their best effort to play this game because that's not what they're concerned with. But you can't fault them because nobody is doing what is best for other people. Everybody's doing what's best for themselves. The Big Ten is looking out for Ohio State. Michigan's looking out for Michigan. And, I mean, it's kind of hard to expect anyone to do anything differently, which is why you can't let people just change the rules when they want, but you also shouldn't have tried to fit everything into such a small, tight window with no room for error. So it was all messed up from the beginning. But it is... The Big Ten locked out, and the best team is going to the cha- in, to the conference championship. But it's not because the Big Ten did this the right way. They just tuck their tail between their legs, and they're like, eh, people will forget about this soon enough. So we're just going to shoo them in there. Now that we got that on, out of the way, it's time to move on to the mailbag. But just another reminder about cutting edge landscaping first. I'm moving to a new apartment this week, so I'm lucky. I don't need yard maintenance but when i do i I call cutting edge i mean hell they were just over at my family friends who i recommended give them a call just a month or two ago moving rocks digging up trees they do it all but call now to make sure you lock them in before winter you don't want to be seven inches snowed under and in a bind to to go somewhere and then need to dig yourself out don't do what the big ten did have some forethought Save yourself the hassle and get the benefit of Cutting Edge's 24-hour snow and ice removal service. Go to a2cuttingedge.com, tell them Tony sent you, and you'll love the price you can get and the work they will do for you. Once again, that's a2cuttingedge.com. All right, now for the fun part. It's our first mailbag. That's when I was going to play like a, you've got mail. So pretend that just came across. I had people send me tweets, Instagram messages, uh, even even a text with questions pertaining to our local teams, and it is all across the board. I mean, we got Michigan State hoops, Pistons, Tigers, Michigan, lots of good stuff. But I'm going to start with the one that I think is the most relevant to what's going on in this current season, and that is Jameson asks, what are fair expectations for Gabe Brown this year? Feels like a low-ceiling, high-floor guy. And right now, let's just tell you where Gabe Brown is five games into the season. 20 minutes per game, 53% field goals, 47% from long range, averaging just under nine points, one and a half rebounds, and one steal per game. He has had a game where he was held scoreless against Duke and then came out a few nights later and dropped a career-high 16. So maybe that's a little evidence of that low-floor, high-ceiling guy right there. But I'm going to say, even with that Duke game happening, I don't think he's a low-floor guy anymore. I think that's the only time something like that is going to happen. This isn't the same Gabe Brown from the last two years. I mean, shots aren't going to fall every night, 
but I still expect him to be an impact piece of this team every night. And I know lots of people do this, but Michigan State beat writers after every game have taken pictures of the court for the guys who come back out to get shots up. And Gabe Brown is the only one who has done that every single night. This dude is hungry. He sees that there's actually an outside shot that he can make a run at the NBA, maybe with a 2K, two-way contract at some point. Or if not, he'll make a good living playing overseas. And he's taking this seriously. He's not that guy who was just a fun piece on the bench with Marcus Bingham from a few years ago dancing around. So my expectations for Gabe Brown are very high, very high. He's in a situation where he plays the two and the three. So he's going to spell Josh Langford at some points. He'll give Aaron Henry a blow at some points. And when he and when he's on the court, he can be on the court sometimes when Michigan State wants to run a small ball lineup and put someone like Hauser at the five. There are tons of ways you can mix and match and get him on the court. Because I don't see him just playing 20 minutes a night when the season's all said and done. I think that needs to be up more like 25 minutes a night once Big Ten play rolls around. And I know there's only so many minutes to go around, but you have to find a way to get your best guys on the court. And I think Gabe Brown is the fourth best player on this team behind only Henry, Hauser, and Watts in that order. I don't think he's going to be able to shoot 53% from the field or 47% from three all year like he is right now. But I don't think it's that far off. I mean, hopefully he doesn't shoot those numbers because he becomes a little more of a volume shooter which almost inherently drops those numbers. That is damn near impossible to sustain if you, are being, if you are one of the focal points of this offense. But I think Michigan State can expect 10 points a game from him on just under 50% shooting from the floor and maybe a tick over 40%, maybe 41 42% from three. And those are still great numbers. What he does need to improve is 1.6 rebounds per game. That's not going to cut it. And he should not be satisfied with that. This is a guy who can jump out of the gym. And yeah, I know he's a, he's a wing or a, or a two guard. So he's getting really long rebounds generally. He's not under the basket a lot. But he needs to find a way to the ball. There is no reason he can't get three to four rebounds per game. I don't know if he gets there. But that's what I would expect of him. I think very highly of Gabe Brown. So I'm... I think playing 20, 25 minutes a night, scoring 10 points a game and grabbing three rebounds a game is reasonable to ask. So I think, I think those are, are not outlandish expectations. And we're going to stay in college uh, before we get to a few questions about our professional teams. And this is one of the funniest questions. Harry asks, who is your least favorite Michigan player of all time? And obviously I went to Michigan State and I always love to rag on Michigan, especially to my friends who are Michigan fans or went there or grew up with me in Ann Arbor. So Harry, who was born in Ann Arbor, hears a lot of it from me. But again, I grew up in Ann Arbor. Uh, so, and I grew up as a Michigan fan. So a lot of the Michigan State fans who are my age, their answers for their most hated guy would be like, like Mike Hart or Braylon Edwards or something. I loved those guys. Those guys were my childhood. And there are still plenty of Michigan guys I've hated, but it's not going to be those common ones. But it's kind of weird because I'm not sure if I have one guy, like the most hated guy that just immediately comes to mind. Like usually you would pick someone because they always come up big against your team or they just dominated you and you couldn't escape them. But Michigan hasn't consistently like over and over and over beat Michigan State in basketball or football 
since I started at Michigan State in 2011. And I'm assuming that, I mean, that's probably why I would hate someone from Michigan the most. So it's not like I have that deep-rooted hatred for someone. And it's not that Michigan hasn't beat Michigan State its fair share, but it's not like it happens all the time. But one guy, when I was thinking about this, who comes to mind is Brendan Gibbons, the kicker for Michigan back in the early 2010s, um, specifically in 2012, who should not have been on that team because he assaulted a female. We're not going to get into specifics. But, I mean, he's just not a good dude, right? Just, just a bad dude who has now had to unaffiliate himself from the program forever. Uh, he kicked four field goals against Michigan State, including a game winner in the final seconds of that 2012 season to win 12 to 10. Just a disgusting win from a disgusting person. Um, so I'd say I hate him for what he did that day, but mostly for who he is as a person. Um, Trey Burke was a pain in the ass forever, but honestly, I loved his game so much, and he's just so talented. It's kind of hard to to hate him because um, it was just more scary playing him than anything. I thought about Mo Wagner, very punchable face, a very punchable. Um, I didn't like what he did to Nick Ward either, uh, making him look silly at times. That wasn't nice. So, I mean, he was ugly and annoying. So I'd say he's probably up there, but he didn't seem like a bad guy. Like, like he, he didn't do anything wrong except have some good games against Michigan State. But also, he is lucky that he was not there the next year when Tillman came into his own and onto the scene because he would have shut him down. That's just an aside. But I was thinking, if I had to pick one guy, even though he's another guy whose, whose game is really unreal and at the next level too, I mean, he, he's going to be an all-pro, uh, it's Devin Bush. That, that Bush League crap tearing up the Spartan logo uh, and, and all those theatrics, like, dude, you're a loser. You're just – like. Michigan State had a schedule, a pregame schedule. It does the walk on the field every game. You know this. Everybody knows this. Michigan was told this. And you were looking for a problem. And then you talk crap after the game because, yes, you won, but it's not like you did all that much. And like you just had an okay day. So Devin Bush, I just hate him because I think he's a loser for that. Like I just think he's an idiot and a loser. So that would be my answer as far as – as people who, who come to top of mind with who I dislike from Michigan. And the, the, now we're switching over to the pros. Those are our two college questions. So the next question comes from Armand, the world's biggest NBA fan in the history of all time. And he asks, what is the bare minimum I would accept for a Derrick Rose uh, right now in a trade? And the initial answer is, I'm pissed we didn't already get a middle first-round pick and ship him off at the deadline last year. That would have been the best-case scenario. But now that we have Killian Hayes, Rose has already said publicly he knows that this is Hayes' team and he's going to do everything he can in order to take him under his wing and mentor him and show him the ropes. So because of that, I hope we can hold on to D. Rose until the deadline. I want him to stay healthy. Average 14 a night in 20-ish minutes, and then trade him at the deadline to a contender. So my hope would be a, a late first-rounder in 2021. I'm not sure if you can get that for a three-ish, three, four-month rental of a 32-year-old Derrick Rose, but, I mean, maybe you can. But let, let, let's say you can't. Um, I, I need a 2022 first-rounder. It doesn't have to be next year, but two years from now. Or... It needs to be a almost equivalent of, of a late first rounder. Like I'm talking, 
the 31st pick overall or 32nd, one of the first two picks in the second round and some cash. Like, like I'm not, I'm not going to be too picky here, but I need some money um, in, in, or, in order to, to help move this thing forward with where the Pistons are in their rebuild. Um, but most importantly, you need draft picks because Weaver has already traded a couple away, like a, for like the first rounder next year in order to get uh, Isaiah Stewart. So, but the question was, what is the bare minimum? And I would have to say the bare, bare minimum is maybe like two second rounders or something. Because, I mean, you have to get rid of him at the deadline. You can't let him walk for nothing in the offseason. And teams will know that you have incentive to deal because of that. And he's on the final months of his contract, or will be at that point. So it's not like you have a ton of leverage like you did last year where you, I mean, they overpriced him because that's what every Detroit team does with every mediocre player. Um, but you had another year where you could sort of see, see what happens. You don't have that luxury this year. So my hope is a late 2021 first. I don't think that's too much of an ask for a veteran guy who has completely reinvented himself and would be really a wonderful sixth man on just about any roster. But I would take some cash and, and a future, like a further in the future first rounder if need be. Because, I mean, bring on I, – I want 20 and 62 this year, baby. Let's, let's get me some Cade Cunningham. I need that in my life. The Pistons need that in their life. And the final two questions are both about my heart and soul, the Detroit Tigers. And the next one, the first one we're going to talk about, comes from Colin, who asks, who are the top three Tigers that I am looking forward to next year and why? And I hate to give chalky answers. Like, I like to make people think. I like to think. I like to think critically and not just say something popular. But I also, at the end of the day, I'm not going to give a take. I'm not going to be a hot take artist or just say someone outlandish. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what I actually think, and I can't help it. My top three guys are the top three prospects in the organization. And we saw two of them last year. But honestly, that might make me even more excited to see them next year. So not in any particular order. Number one is Casey Mize. Mize really struggled as a rookie last year. Like really, really struggled. I mean, he was way worse than anybody thought he would be. I can't, I would have lost a lot of money if someone had bet me on what his stat line was going to be in his first year. I would have lost a lot of money. And, I mean, I'm still somewhat shocked, like especially after how he looked in his debut against the White Sox with no walks and seven strikeouts. He almost made it five innings, and then after that, it was just all downhill. He started seven games, went 0-3, with a 6.99 ERA and a 1.48 whip. He struck out 26 batters and walked 13 in 28 innings. And in case those stats aren't clear enough, the real issue was control. Mize walked, after that initial game at the White Sox I just mentioned, where he walked no hitters, he walked multiple batters in every single one of his final six starts. He wasn't able to get ahead of hitters, and when he did, he couldn't put them away. His walks and the inability to get those quick outs drove up his pitch count consistently. And they were limiting him because they're not going to throw his arm out, obviously. So he threw between 70 and 90 pitches in every game. One game he threw 67 pitches. But, But that inaccuracy and the desire to take it easy on him is why he made it through five innings just one time in seven starts. I mean, four of his seven starts, he went four or fewer. 
And after that first game where he struck out seven, he never struck out more than five in a game. And he always walked at least two and sometimes three. A lot of that is because the big league hitters were able to just, just, just spit on his splitter. And that's his money pitch. That's why he was the 1-1 one, one pick in 2018. Yes, his 97-mile-per-hour fastball is great. Yes, his curve slider mix is, is also a plus pitch. But he is going to make his money on his splitter. And once it became obvious how he was using it, he couldn't get out with it. And so that made him average, below average. And so I am so excited to see how he learns to be a big league pitcher. And maybe start pitching backwards. Instead of getting ahead with fastballs and then going off speed, switch it up. You need to see some 00 or 01 breaking balls, 10 breaking balls, and then go with the fastballs. Work up in the zone after that. Move, move eye levels. Work in and out. He wasn't working the plate last year. So his development will be very fun to watch. Number two is Tarek Skubal, another top 50 prospect in the majors. And Skubal had his fair share of struggles too last year, but he also shined on more occasions than, than Casey, for sure. His final line was 1-4 with a 5.63 ERA, 1.22 whip, and 37 strikeouts, just 11 walks in 32 innings. And first of all, 10 strikeouts per 9 innings is awesome, especially for a starter. That's fantastic. Second, 37 strikeouts to 11 walks. A 3.5 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio, that's going to play at this level. That's going to play. That's going to make you a lot of money for a long time. And in his and of his final six starts, four times he made it through five innings, and twice he made it through six innings. So he was pitching deep into games despite never throwing more than uh, 90 pitches in a season, or in a game, excuse me. I mean, they were careful with him. And a lot of his success was because he dominated the left-handed hitters. They hit 136 against him. That's what a power lefty is supposed to do. And that's what he did. And I expect that to continue. But he got pummeled by righties. They had a 905 OPS against him. That's way above league average. And that has to come down in order to be what everybody thinks he can be at this level, which is an all-star pitcher. And so much like Casey Mize, I expect him to be much better. And last but certainly not least is Spencer Torkelson. I mean, there is no reason he should not be on this team coming out of training camp, shy of them giving him the Vladimir Guerrero Jr. treatment, waiting three weeks so they can get an extra year of team control, and then bringing him up at the end of April. As the scouts say, his hit tool is off the frickin' charts. I mean, he is a line drive hitter who has enough power to hit bombs to the point where he's considered a home run hitter. You want guys who are considered home run hitters but don't have big holes in their swing. That's Torkelson. He works the middle of the field but can still put it in the seats to any direction opposite field with ease. I mean, he has plus, plus power. He will have the best hit tools of anybody on the team the day he gets called up. And to work with someone like Miguel Cabrera every day, I mean, that's going to help him. And he just adds so much depth to this lineup. It's going to be unbelievably fun to watch him go to work. There's going to be struggles. You don't just hit 300, 320 as a rookie. That doesn't happen. But if he plays the majority of next season, you get 20 bombs out of him. And an OPS north of 800, that's a lot to like. That's a lot to like. 
And I'm interested to see if he can be an average defender at third base too, because really that's all you need from him on that side of it. If you're set on moving Candelario over to first base, especially, and if that's the plan, you have two corner infielders you can actually start building around to move forward. That's a crazy thought to have for the Tigers. When, what, eight months ago before they drafted him, you didn't think you had a single infielder. If you have half of it down, that expedites this process tremendously. I mean, I just can't wait for baseball season. And I thought I, I thought about saying, like, Riley Green, if he makes his way up for the September roster expansion or something, or sometime before that, he's going to be a very intriguing prospect. He can't even legally drink yet. He's a young guy, huge power, very fast. Um, or Isaac Paredes, who had a nice year last year. What does he do? Uh, probably knowing that he's going to start somewhere on the infield going forward this year. Or Matt Manning, who, who should make his major league debut this year. I fully expect him to. But if I have to pick three, it's got to be these three. Mize, Scoobal, and Torkelson. And the last question came from at Austin Ebling on Twitter. And that was, should the Tigers go after any big free agents this winter, or is it too early to rebuild? And my heart, of course, wants to say go for it, but my head has a different answer. And the short answer is they should probably wait one more year to really make moves. However, there is one free agent this year that I think the Tigers should absolutely pursue to the highest degree, and that's JT Realmuto, the catcher. No matter how realistic that is. I mean, first of all, Pudge Rodriguez put this team on the map back in the mid-2000s and was a big reason Maglio Ordonez and Carlos Guillen, like the trades and the offseason signings, the free agents and the like, started coming here. So a catcher has come here before and changed the culture of this franchise quickly. And two, Real Muto is the best two-way catcher in the game. I mean, he can lead this young rotation for years to come. And he is someone you can place in the middle of your order and hit five. Let me tell you, there are not many catchers, if more than two or three, that you can bat higher than seven in the lineup. To get someone who would impact the offense, the defense, and the pitching staff on day one is something that we all dream about. He is the number one guy. I mean, more than Trevor Bauer, more than George Springer. I mean, Real Muto is my number one guy. And then, I mean, someone like DJ LeMayhew, that would be cool. That's a great story from Brother Rice returning back home after winning a batting title in, in either one league or both leagues. I think both leagues. Uh, I, mean, ju- I mean, just a stud. Uh, but he's returning to New York. He's going to re-sign with the Yankees. And, and he's a little bit older than someone you would want right now because the Tigers are still one year away from a playoff hunt. And other big names, he's not a free agent, but Francisco Lindor is being actively shopped by the Indians, and he is the centerpiece of whatever franchise he signs with for 10 years. Boom. Like, set it in stone. But the problem with that is A, it's a $350 million price tag that Chris Illich probably won't pay unless the late, great Mike Illich comes down from heaven and starts operating him like a puppet and pulling the strings and gets to do it himself, and I don't expect that to happen. And he still has one year left on his deal with the Indians, and so you'd have to trade for him. 
and everybody wants him. So you'd have to give up top-tier prospects, like plural probably, at least Manning or maybe Riley Green or something like that. And that just doesn't make sense to acquire him that way. Like I mentioned George Springer briefly, who would be super cool to pair with A.J. Hinch, but at 31, a little bit of an injury history, it would have to be at the right price. Not to mention, the White Sox look like a wagon. (laughs) They are stacked. Just signing Lance Lynn, adding him to that rotation with Giolito and Keuchel. I mean, they had the reigning MVP in Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson, Grandal, Jimenez, Robert, Luis Robert. I mean, they're loaded. And it you're not going to overtake them. The Twins are still going for it right now. There's no shame in running out all your young guys, having one more deal, one more year of these CJ Crone, Jonathan Scope type guys. I'm, like I said, you can still go for JT Real Muto or someone like that. But you still got to see what's going on in the farm. I mean, Mize and Scooble need another year to develop. Manning, Torkelson, Green, they all need to make it to the major leagues. You can't. Free agency is how you supplement a team that is almost there. It's not how you build a championship team. So you have to wait. You have to wait a little bit. That's going to do it for the mailbag. That's going to do it for this episode. That was a lot of fun. I appreciate you sticking with me. I will certainly do another mailbag again soon. That just got me so juiced for the baseball season, it is hard to describe. So until next time, please remember to rate, review, subscribe, share this podcast with your friends, family. I appreciate all the feedback that you've given me. Everyone's been awesome. Uh, We're hoping to have some more exciting news about guests and things like that coming up here shortly. I will keep you all in the loop as far as that. But until then, stay safe. Talk to you soon, Michigan.